That uh, music is so catchy. I love that music every time I play. Hey, uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at New City Church. Uh, we're glad that you guys are, are here with us uh, this morning on uh, Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend is always uh, unique uh, for me um, because my birthday always falls on this weekend. And so for me, um, every time this, this time comes around each year, another, uh, really another year has passed. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know if this is true about you, and, and maybe it is, but it's true for me, is that I feel like with each year that passes, um, I, I keep adding uh, to this ever-growing list of things that I say, I wish I would have known that earlier. Um, like I'm turning 38 this year and I think, man, like I, I really, I really thought I might know more or I, maybe I should, maybe I should have known that um, before now. I had a, a fun, uh, fun uh, example that happened this, this last week. Uh, my wife, um, well, I was, my wife was gone and, and so whatever, I was up in the morning and I was getting ready uh, for the day and, uh, and I was, went to the restroom or to the bathroom to, to comb, comb my beard um, because it gets a little unruly, um, and, uh, and I looked in the, the designated box that is, you know, for, for me, <laughs> this little tiny box, and I'm looking for, and I'm looking for my comb, uh, and, uh, and, I can't, and it's, it's just disappeared. I can't find it. I don't know where it has gone. Um, and so, and I, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to go someplace, and I can't go, like, unkept. And so I know that fingers just through the beard doesn't work, right? Uh, and so I start to wonder, okay, what am I going to do? And, and I, look to the, I look to the left, and, and what I find to the left of the sink, I see uh, my wife's hairbrush. And, and it's, it's, you know, not a comb and... But, you know, I would think that it probably does the same, the same type of thing. So I thought, you know what, well, let's, let's just give it a shot. So, so I take this brush, right, because you start to brush. Uh, it's not combing, it's brushing, right? And I start to, to brush uh, my beard. Now, let me just tell you, the first thing that I noticed when, when I use this brush is that it doesn't get tangled, right? A comb, like, tugs and yanks, and, and then by the time I finished, it's like I've left, like, 15, like, hairs in the sink because it just yanks. It's hard. And so, and I, I start to brush, and, and, and I realize it's straightening my hair, and yet at the same time, it's, it doesn't hurt at all. And I was like, man, this is pretty cool. But, but I don't know, all the guys laughed at me the first, uh, first service when I said this, but let me just tell you this. Um, there are these, these, these bristles um, and at the end of these bristles are these little rubber tips. And I, and I kid you not, when, when you brush, it's like they massage your face. <laughs> and and, I, and I, it was like, and I, I did it the, that first morning, and I was like, like, closed my eyes. I was like, oh. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a religious experience. And it radically changed and transformed how my mornings work, right? And it was in that moment, I was like, man, I wish I knew about this a lot earlier. <laughs> right? I, wish, I wish I knew about this sooner. A couple days later, fast forward a couple days, and, and uh, my wife and I were getting ready for the morning, and, and we were having this conversation kind of through the mirror, you know, in the mirror. And, uh, and so without really thinking about it, I bend down, I grab the brush, and I start brushing, and about 30 seconds in, you know, to brushing into this conversation, you know, I'm in the middle, in the middle of a stroke, in the middle of a brush, and she kind of freezes in the mirror. And I go, uh-oh, because I, I wasn't thinking about it. And then, she, and then she pauses, and then she looks over at me, and she goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, uh, what, do you, what do you mean? And she goes, that's my brush. I went, oh, I'm, 
I'm so sorry. And, and I hand it back to her, you know, and I'm kind of, kind of sad to see it leave. Um, and, then, and then I've never seen my wife do this. I hand it to her, and she holds it, like, in, in the tips of her fingers. Like, like, it is the most dangerous atomic biological weapon ever known to man. And she looks at it, and then she looks at me, and then she looks at the brush, and she looks at me, and she goes... and throws it at me, hits me in the chest, it falls down, and she goes, that's disgusting. (laughs) You put that where like cheese and crumbs live. That's gross, I'm never using it again. That's your brush. First words out of my mouth, I'm sorry babe. But while I bend down to pick up the brush, I'm not going to lie. This is what I'm thinking. Had I have known about this earlier, I would have done this a long time ago. <laughs> I, w- I would have had a brush, and it would have changed my life five years ago. <laughs> you know, whenever it was, right, we have these, these aha moments uh, in our life um, where it, it can change radically or in small ways. Last week we were looking uh, in the beginning of Acts chapter 9 in verses 1 through 9, and we saw the beginning part uh, of Saul's conversion, uh, right? And it's the beginning of his aha moment because at the end of that, at the end of those nine verses, Paul or Saul is in the state of blindness for three days. And so his aha moment still hasn't finished yet. God is doing a work in his heart, uh, in, in his life that we are going to find out about today. And what's going to happen is that we're going to see God show up with him and he's going to remind him or tell him uh, that this is who I am, this is who you are and this is what I want to do with you. And the reality is, is that for all of us, we need these aha moments in our lives. Now, sometimes they're really big and grand, and sometimes they're really small. And sometimes uh, they, they, um, they happen in short periods of time, and sometimes they happen a long time away. Sometimes they happen in the valley, and sometimes they, they happen in the desert. There's there's no pattern that God has for how these are regulated in our lives, but, but we have these moments, we need them on a daily, weekly basis that God would show up. And when we have these moments, whether big or small, what they do is that they propel us deeper into an understanding of who God is, uh, who we are in light of his work and what he wants to accomplish uh, through us. And so here we are in Acts chapter 9, Saul's conversion, kind of part two. We're going to start in verse 10 and work our way as much as we can through this text. We won't get through everything, um, but uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Uh, if you're in one of our venues, you can raise uh, your hand and, and someone will bring you um, a Bible. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Here's where we start. Uh, Now there was a man, uh, there was a disciple at Damascus named uh, Ananias. Okay, stop there for a moment uh, because we are in a city that we are totally unfamiliar with. Okay, Damascus, not prior uh, in Acts. This is the first time we hear about it. And so understanding where we are uh, is important. Damascus 
uh, is a city. It's about 135 miles uh, kind of north uh, to northeast as the crow flies um, uh, from Jerusalem. So it's at least a seven-day journey by foot. It's a long ways to get there. Uh, And Saul has made uh, this trek to Damascus. Now, theologically, this is significant because if you remember, we go back to Acts chapter 2, right? God said, I'm going to, this gospel thing is going to start in Jerusalem, okay? When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, this is going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to Judea, it's going to go to Samaria, and then it's going to go to the ends of the earth, right? He's saying what starts here is going to go there, and then it's going to go there, and then it's going to go there, and then at the end, it's going to go everywhere, That's God's plan. And when we look at Damascus, Damascus is the first city outside of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Samaria area. It's really this first city on the trek, the journey to the great beyond, where God says, I'm going to take this gospel everywhere to the ends of the earth. And that's where we are, right? We're in this first city that that Christians are showing up. And so what we see is that God is fulfilling even just days and weeks or whatever it is later, he's taking the gospel forward just like he promised that he would. And what he's going to do in this city is that he is going to prepare this man named Saul to be the key proponent in how it starts into the rest of the world. But before he does that, he, he has this call. God has this call to a man uh, named Ananias. Now, we don't know much about uh, Ananias other than that he is a, he's a devout follower. So check this out. It says, uh, the Lord said to him in a vision, uh, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Okay, let's just, just, let's just think for a second. Because when, when, when God calls on Ananias, his response is basically this. Hey, what's going on? What, what do you need? I'm here, I'm ready, and I'm willing. And I go, man, I wish that was my response all the time. I'm ready. God, what it is, whatever it is that you want me to do, I am all in, and I'm ready to go. And so God is like, okay, okay, let's get this on the road, right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to rise, and then I want you to go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man. Now check out this map. We've got this map that we can leave up for you guys. It's a city uh, of, of the, it's a map of the city, Damascus. Uh, you'll see running kind of east to west, west to east is that street called Straight. Um, by the way, uh, this street is still in existence today. And so if you were to visit Damascus, it's, it's altered direction some, um, but it's still there. And so just cool to know that thousands of years ago, what was there is still there today. Up in that top right corner, we have the house of Ananias. Um, and, uh, and that's where he lives. And so God's command is to, to go from his house, to go to the street called Straight, to find a man named Judas, okay? Now, if you're Ananias, you're thinking at this point, this seems like a real simple house call. Pretty easy stuff, right? But then God says, here's the person that you're going to look for, and it's a man named Saul, and he's from Tarsus. And if you're him, automatically something connects or clicks in your mind because what he says is, oh, Lord, I have heard about this man. He has a reputation that that precedes him, and it's synonymous with the idea of pain and suffering. Wherever Saul goes, bad things happen. 
And so Ananias is rightfully fearful, right? The, the Saul guy used to be in Jerusalem. He was 135 miles away. There's a safe distance there. Now, all of a sudden, he's made that trek, and he's, he's here in this city. And by the way, he's carried with him these special papers from the high priest himself that allow him to arrest anybody that he wants to. And that is a scary thing. If you think about it then and now, if there was a person in Charlotte who had a piece of paper that said, I can arrest any Christian that I want to for any reason, whether it's just or unjust, I can put you in prison, you might be a little scared. I would be scared. It's possible, we don't know, but it's possible that maybe these sheets even had names on them. Maybe Ananias's name was on that sheet, and that's a scary thing. Like if Saul were to come into a town and say, line up alphabetically, what's your name? Your name is Ananias. Okay, Ananias, Ananias, yep, there he is, arrest him. Excuse me, Paul, uh, was your name Paul? Can I call you Paul? Okay, let me just, uh, let me just uh, say, did you, ask my, did you ask for my name? Because, because when, when people have been asking, this strange thing has been happening, I say my name is Ananias, but, 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 but really my name is Bob. I should be in the B's. Actually, I'll just go down to the B's and I'll meet you over there. Uh, and then we can kind of have this conversation, right? You see, Ananias is rightfully fearful, right? He's a symbol of our humanity in this moment. Because when God says, here's what I want you to do, and we know that it's difficult, whether it's going to land me in prison or if it's something small, like it's just going to change the way I do life on a daily basis, I kind of go, meh. Is, is, is that really what you want to do? Is that, is that really what I need to do? And what I'm thinking, one of the things I love about God is that God's not a people pleaser. He's not a people pleaser like me. He doesn't bend over backwards. He doesn't just say like, okay, cool, you know, yes, cool, you, you don't really want to do that. That's fine. I, I, rescind, I rescind the call and you can, you know, go grab some Ben and Jerry's. You know, like that's not who God is, right? And so here he says, right, he says to go. Like he doesn't bend on his call. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. Now remember just a couple of sentences ago, God had told Ananias to rise and then go. And here he just says, no, I need you to go. So here's the deal. I think that Ananias has gotten up, he's ready to go, but then when he finds out it's Saul, something gives him pause. And he's unwilling so far yet to move. And the text doesn't tell us necessarily why, other than that he's fearful, but I would think that in the back of his mind, because it would be in the back of my mind, if God said, here's what I want you to do, and it's going to be hard and challenging, I would say, yeah, but why? Why do you really want me to do that? And I think that that is in my heart, and maybe it's in your heart, is that this, this broken record, this question of why. Why, why, why? God, if you would just tell me why I have to do that, then I might be more willing or more apt to do that. And yet, I think that it's important for us to realize that even though we oftentimes don't, uh, we don't do this, the reality is that when God says go, he doesn't have to explain why. Now, sometimes he does, and here he does, but the word go should be enough. 
The word go should be enough. Here, he, he is gracious enough to tell us why. Here's what he says in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he, referring to Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, this is a huge deal, okay? Because up until this point, for thousands and thousands of years, right, since the beginning, it's been about God and his chosen people, the Jews, now, they've included people in, and there's kind of some regulations around that, right? But it was, it was primarily God establishing his chosen people. And what he reveals to Ananias here is that this meta-narrative, this grand story that I have been unfolding since the beginning of time, which everybody thought was about you, is now really about everyone. And this man, Saul, is going to be my chosen instrument, the right tool for the job that I'm going to use to go and help make that happen. Now, if you're Ananias, you go, that, logically, that makes sense. That's a big deal, right? I, I can wrap my mind around that in my head, but the reality is, is that there's still a lot of emotional stuff going on, I would think, right? Because you look at Saul, you go, Saul has caused so much suffering. It's still not fair. It's still not okay that you would give him grace, that you would choose to use him. And then what God says next is he says, oh, by the way, uh, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, if I were Ananias in his shoes, I'd be like, okay, now it's fair. Now it's fair, right? God caused this, he caused this much suffering. You're going to put it back on him. I get it. That, that makes total sense. Emotionally, that weight has been lifted right? And see, but the reality is, is that that's not the character of God. That's not who he is. He's not vindictive in this way, nor is this recompense. It's not like he says to Saul, here's how much suffering you've caused, and so here's how much you'll get, right? Like he has this cosmic scale of suffering that if Paul or Saul has caused this much with interest, then it really comes back to at least that, but with interest this much, and it's more, that's not who God is. And that's not what he's doing. Why suffering is a part of Saul's life, or that it will be a part in the same way as that it will be a part of all of our lives as Christians today, is this. It's because that's the way of the cross. That's the example that Christ set for us. And every single Christian for all time should expect and endure suffering because Jesus himself said, by the way, don't forget, the world hated me long before it hated you. If we bear and carry the name of cross, then we will uh, expect suffering. Now, this doesn't seem to be Ananias' motive, and it's definitely not God's motive. Um, and, and by the way, if this is the way that God worked with this cosmic scale, uh, then grace wouldn't exist, right? Because the scales are always tipped against us, and grace is to, to tip the scales in favor of us. Grace wouldn't exist if that's the way that God worked. But suffering is going to be a part of Paul's life. Fast forward with me um, over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you have your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to read this, this passage. It's, it's going to go quick, but here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to say, I had the greatest resume as a Jew, and now I have the greatest resume as a Christian. Okay? Now listen to what he says, starting in kind of 21b. It says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Okay? Are they Hebrews? So am I. 
Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Check. Me too. So am I. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Now, hold that in your mind because we're going to come back to that later because that's not what Paul is going to argue. He's not going to boast in these things, but he's saying, I want you to see if you think you have reason to boast, here are the reasons why I have reason to boast as a better follower of Jesus. And forgive me for a second because he says, I'm going to talk like a madman for a second. Just listen and follow along. Here's what he says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one or minus one. Three times I was beaten by rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Come on, Paul. Now you're just making things up. Nope. He's going to keep going. On frequent journeys, in danger uh, uh, from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And those are just the physical things. And he says, apart from all those other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. You see, suffering is going to play a huge part in Saul's life. And, and they kind of say this, like had Saul have known in that moment when God was going to radically change his life, that 14 years later, this was going to be the list that he was going to read Do you think that he would say, man, if I would have known this earlier, I would not have signed up for this. Never, not once does Saul say, everything that I have been brought through has been worthless. This has all been for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus Christ. In fact, he has boldness in that. He would not have changed his mind. Back to Acts the story kind of continues, and, and Ananias, despite whatever his feelings might be, it does, we don't really know, but he chooses to go, and he meets Saul where he is. He meets him at the house. He finds him praying. He lays his hands on him. He's the first person to welcome him to the family of God and says, Brother Saul. Then he prays over him. Okay, he prays over him, he regains his sight, he's filled with food and water, and then he, uh, he's baptized, and that's really the end of his story, the end of his conversion story. Now, neither Ananias nor Paul really knew at that point what his role was going to look like, but it would be something akin, maybe greater, uh, than, than like the first person who laid their hands on Billy Graham and said, hey, welcome to the family. We didn't know. And what, hap- what God is going to do through Saul is something huge, tremendous, and it's going to be incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I think that for us, when we look at our stories, it's really easy for us to go compare our story to Saul and go, man, Saul's story is so great. Did you, have you heard this story? Man, you've got to hear the testimony of Saul. Man, it is so, so good. Hey, why don't you tell me your story? Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, well, let me tell you my story. Um, here's some things uh, that I did before. Here's some things I don't really do now. Um, but you know what? My story is really not that convincing. You should talk to Saul, though. Saul's got a great story. If you want to be convinced that Jesus is real, that's kind of what we say. You want to be convinced that Jesus is real, talk to him. 
hear his story, because it is powerful. But check this out. I love that Chris said this last week, uh, and I want to remind us today, because I think it's 100% accurate and true. There are no boring stories. When he said that, he was talking about conversion stories. There are no boring conversion stories. I think that's 100% true. But can I add on a piece at the end that says this? Even though there are no boring stories, there are boring storytellers. Right? We can take a powerful, cool, amazing, grand story and we can make it lame and dull. And our story loses its effectiveness when we do that. What do I mean? Your story and my story isn't powerful just because it contains details about the sin in our life. There's a big difference between sin and separation from God. All of us have sin in our life, and some of that has looked different than other people's sins. And and when we see the contrast of my old life to my new life in that sin or not sin, it has this appearance of greatness and grandness, which is true. But there is something deeper and far more intrinsically powerful in your story than your sin, and it's your separation. You see, what God did, right, is that when God created all of the universe— He said, ah, man, we're still not there. So he creates man, right? And he stamps his image on man. And then he says, this is good. This is the way it ought to be. And for a little while, man exists. Man and woman exist in this right relationship with God where their heart is clean and pure. And all of the love and all of the light that God has given us to reflect literally comes out. And and it worships God and, and it cares for other people. And we live the way that we ought to. But when sin enters into the world and then it enters into the heart of man, it radically shifts the paradigm. And now my heart, which was once meant to reflect, can do one thing and one thing only. And that is not to love others, it's to self-love. All of that love bounces back and it stays in my heart. And my selfishness is my one focus. And my heart is now a heart of stone. It's broken. It's decaying, right? It's decrepit. It is empty and it is hollow. And when God looks at it, he says, man, this is not good. And we need to fix the scenario. So he says, I'm sending my son. By the way, Jesus met you on your road. You didn't meet him in the same way that Saul didn't meet Jesus. Jesus met him. That's exactly the same true for you. Jesus showed up in your life whether you were 5 or 55, and it wasn't because of you, it was because of him. He found you, and he looked at you, and he said, man, would you like the forgiveness of sins? And I say, yes, please. And so he takes my old heart, he takes it out, and it's gone, it is no more, it's not there, and he gives me a brand new heart, and he starts it thumping, thump, thump, thump. And all of a sudden, if I've had a stone heart before that, when I feel that heart of flesh and those, those moments of conversion, when I become a Christian, immediately something is different. Now, I'm not perfect. I struggle with all the same things I did before. And yet there is something intrinsically different about the way that I know that I exist. And God shows up and impacts us because he has radically transformed us from the inside out. And I got to say that that is our story. And it is powerful. 
It's powerful that you were 100% separated from God, and apart from anything that you would ever do to find it, God showed up and said, I'm going to change you. Do you want it? Yeah, I do. If that's our story, that is powerful. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And yet we turn our, res- our stories into these resumes. Here's the, thing I, here's the things I do well. Here's the things I don't really do anymore. You know, and then we, the, the gospel gets lost. That Jesus showed up and radically gave us something brand new is gone. Our stories are powerful in the exact same way as Saul's because they started in the exact same place. Do you hear that? Your story, my story, our story started in the same place. But let me, let me tell you this. My story will lose its power when I start to make it about me. Your story will lose its power when you make it about you. And collectively, our story loses its power when we make it about us. It's got to be about Jesus. It's not about our resume. It's about Christ's resume. This is, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you, to tell you my story is not to tell you about me. It's to tell you about Jesus. This is what God did. He radically changed, changed my heart. And if you came to know Christ when you're five, you might have to work a little bit harder to tell that story. But I tell you what, it can be just as powerful as anybody else's. Because it starts with who God is and his character and his nature of coming to you and doing something that you couldn't do. We're going to wrap up um, in Acts chapter 9 here. We can't go through everything in our final minutes. And so let me summarize for you what happens. Saul is converted. He's beginning his ministry. Um, And so what happens is he spends a a little amount of time with the disciples in Damascus. uh, And then immediately he starts to preach the gospel in the synagogues. Um, And and so you notice right there, again, Paul isn't perfect, right? But he starts, there's these immediate automatic changes, right? And and everything he starts doing, he shows up, he says, Jesus is the son of God. And people are baffled, they're confused because this is the guy who came to arrest people. And Saul's message is basically this, I got it wrong. I wish I would have known this earlier, but I got it wrong. Jesus is who he says he is, and let me tell you about him. And so all of his opponents, or excuse me, all of the people that Paul would have called his allies are now going to become his opponents. Look in chapter 9, verse 23. Here's what it says. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But, when their plot became, but then their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in, uh, in a basket. It's a little comical, okay? When you think about Paul, the courageous Paul being lowered in a basket, check over just one more time. We're going to end with the 2 Corinthians 11. Go back there. You know, remember, because uh, what Paul is going to do, remember he says that I had the greatest resume as a Jew. I had the greatest resume as a Christian. If there is anybody that has grounds to boast, it is me. Because remember, if they were servants of Christ, I'm a better one too. So not only was I zealous for the law, uh, perfect and blameless under the law, but I was also a better servant than anybody else. As Jew and as Christian, I have the best resume possible. And yet what Paul says is entirely contrasting to that. And here's what he says in verse 30. He says, but if I must boast, 
I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He said, my resume isn't about me. It's not about who I was necessarily before. It's about Jesus Christ. It's when I show my weakness, Christ's strength shines through. And that's what his story is about. And in that verse 32, you look to that next verse, what he says is that when I was in Damascus, I was let down out of a hole in the wall and I escaped their hands. And he basically said this, you want to know how I started my ministry? Because this is 14 years later, remember? He said, you want to know about how I started my ministry? Uh, I started my ministry by running away. I ran away. In my weakness, I ran. And I, can I just say this? If you leave with one thing today, uh, my, my, I encourage you to remember this, is that we need to boast in the things that show our weakness. We boast in the things that show our weakness because that's what God is going to do over the course of his career. And it starts here in Acts chapter 9. And that's where he's going to take him. And Paul's going to develop this theology. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Now, if I end with, end with two things, um, my brush is way over here, so I'm not going to go grab it. But if I were to remind mind you with the brush of these things, these aha moments in life where we go, man, I wish I would have known this earlier. Let me give you two from my life that maybe you might relate to, and, uh, and we, will, we will leave together with these things. The first thing that I wish that I knew, because um, here's my story. My story is that I came to know Christ when I was five. I really do, do believe that I did. And, and for many, many years, I, I would say I wasted many years not realizing how much power there was in my story. My story is powerful, and, and it is for certain people, right? It could be for anybody, but when God gives me favor, I don't have to always look to find somebody that, that is a Paul character. I can, I can be in relationship with people whose story is connected to mine, and that's going to make sense that God has given me favor with, right? And there's power in my story because it's not about me. It's, it's about the gospel. And I have to wrestle with that question. Do I trust that God can do something big through my story? Do I trust that God can do something big through my story? And can I say that this is anecdotal but, and it's worth writing down. But the more that we understand the power in our own story, the more we will begin to see the potential in other people's stories. Because you will, your, your, your uh, horizon of people will multiply. And you will see people who need Jesus. Second thing I wish I knew is this. I just wish I knew earlier that following Jesus isn't about building a resume. My story is not about a resume. It's about being transformed into Jesus from the inside out, allowing him to do that work. It's not about all these things that I can boast in, right? It's about simply allowing God to transform me from the inside out. And over time, I start to open up more doors and he continues to transform me, right? And then it's my job in this life to invite people into those rooms in my life and allow people to see what once was a, a broken down, rotted uh, a room that God can use a broken, foolish, uh, empty, like silly person like me and radically transform him and that I multiply that into other people, that this is about God, not about me. Learning to boast in my weakness. 
And so maybe you, maybe you fit with one of those stories. Maybe you've been building up a resume. Uh, maybe you feel like you just don't have power uh, in your story. Maybe you feel like you don't even have a story. Uh, today could be that day for you. Whichever, wherever you are, maybe God is revealing something to you. You go, man, I wish I would have known that earlier. But then there's this prayer that follows, these intentional acts and prayer that follow uh, as we realize that, that our story can be used in a powerful way. What started in Acts chapter 2 has not ended. It is still going. And you and I, all of us together, are equal parts in the same way that Paul was an equal part. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this morning. We thank you for uh, the opportunity just to dig into your word for a moment. I know this is, this is some, in some sense simple and practical, right? We're not looking at the, 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 all the big details of what you were going to do from a missional standpoint, right? But there is this, this way in which we can sit back from the story and we can learn from the story of Saul that our story is really in some sense no different because yes, sin may look differently in my life. It might be in some sense unique to me over what was to Saul, but our separation was the same. That it started in the exact same place. You started in the exact same place with Saul as you started with us, and our stories take time to build. And God, would you give us the, the courage and the conviction, the boldness in our story? moving from here. Would you give us clarity? Would you give us contentment? Would you give us peace? Remind us of the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus Christ. And may we with clarity go forward uh, as instruments in this continuation of Acts 2. Lord, we love you and, and give ourselves to you. In our name we pray. Amen.